On this podcast, we talk with real people sharing their own authentic experiences. So just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language, descriptions of violence, and mentions of suicide. It also includes some extremely joyful descriptions of farming. Even before we left Ramadi, I just remember like having these overwhelming feelings like I don't want to go home, you know. That space had become so familiar, I didn't want to leave it. This is John Turner. I thought about home all the time, but I just felt like I couldn't return home. For me, I had the option to stay in for another deployment, which I almost took. But then one of my other buddies was like, dude, just get out. I kicked myself in the ass for that because like, that's what I wanted to do. Like, This mm-hmm. was my life. That was what I wanted to be my career. And... Uh, I feel like I let myself down in getting out. The transition was was incredibly difficult. You just get flooded with all these memories that you you tried to suppress. And um, I think if I didn't have a life-giving purpose, uh, my life would be much different. I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope is My Middle Name, a podcast from Consensus Digital Media. Today, I'm going to introduce you to John Turner. Like many veterans who served America bravely, John had a rough time transitioning to civilian life again. But he found his way home and learned to set down roots, quite literally. Today, He's the owner of Wild Roots Community Farm, and he's here to talk with us about how caring for the land helped him take care of himself and a whole lot of other people, too. Welcome, John Turner. It is spring in Vermont at Wild Roots Farm, Vermont. What is happening up there? Things are kind of popping all of a sudden. Our big pigs are getting ready to move out of the upper high tunnel into their pasture. Uh, We just kitted our first goats on site they're getting ready to move out into the into the field as well and have you had experience on a farm did you grow up on a farm do you have childhood memories of a farm i have childhood memories of a farm but i didn't grow up on one i grew up in northern connecticut between hartford and yukon and so a lot of that part of the state is tobacco fields and cornfields and when i was a child uh, my mom she used to take me and my brother up to yukon and uh, we'd go hang out with the cows and the horses, and uh, they just they left a lasting impression on my life. I realized I didn't have many memories of my grandmother, my mom's mother. And a couple nights after having that thought, I remembered sitting in the garden with her when I was a baby, and that was probably about when I was two years old. And I can remember very vividly the, the smell of the tomato, the vine, how it has that mm. very unique smell, and then um, the cucumbers. And it was shortly after that that I actually got into gardening. I love the smell of tomato vines. It's life-giving. And it's so interesting that you were able to have a memory from that far back. It's, I think, sensations associated with smell, especially. And then the association at such a young age that that smell and taste and that reward comes from the earth. Let's go back before you had the farm and take us back to your decision to join the military. And what was going through your mind then? 
I always knew that at some point I was going to be in the service. Some of my earliest memories after, you know, being in the garden were of going to air shows at Westover Air Force Base where my dad was stationed. I remember seeing the pilots from the C-5s and the C-17s and uh, they had their green flight suits on and just kind of being intrigued by, by their presence. And I remember when the first troops came home from the, from the first Gulf War, we were there in one of the hangars and we welcomed them. There is this unit that was just coming back and they had been away for however long, away from their families and, and in the desert in a foreign country. There's this woman who, who came through the hangar door and I just remember her looking around and it didn't seem as though she had anyone with her. And for whatever reason, I broke rank from my family and I just, I ran up to her and I gave her a hug. Mm. And that was my first experience with war because there's just something about that interaction that I had with her where I felt like ever since that moment, I knew for certain I was going to be in the service. And I think I was probably six years old at that time. I knew that I had a great uncle that was in World War II. Um, and I had a bunch of his patches for when he was in the service. When I signed up or asked my mom to give the approval when I was 17 in between my junior and senior year of high school to go into the Marines, she was reluctant, but she did so knowing that's what I really wanted to do. Hmm. When 9-11 happened, I was a junior in high school. And so a month and a half after I graduated, I was being sent off to, to Paris Island, you know, for a Marine Corps boot camp. So you've spent your life knowing you wanted to be in the service. What was the reaction once you were actually there? Part of my reaction was like, this was everything I wanted to do. I wanted to go into a branch that was going to challenge me. And for me, that was Marine Corps infantry. I loved boot camp, honestly. What I really enjoyed about getting up before dawn and doing early morning PT was I got to watch the sunrise come up over the swamps on Paris Island every morning. And there was something very meditative about that, watching this, this spectacular moment, the colors change and kind of the birds start to come in, weaving in and out of the branches. And then the cadence of us actually running in step, that kind of like solidified this, this really intense passion that I had had for uniformity and, and for service and for like watching out for your bros. I got there February 13th of 2004. You have all the senior Marines and they had just gotten back from Okinawa. They did a six or seven month pump there. And some of the guys had gotten uh, sent off to go to Afghanistan. All these senior Marines, man, you're just a boot. You're nothing to them. And so you get the worst duties, the worst jobs, and you get treated like crap for probably about a year and a half. And still to this day, I am a firm believer of having a hierarchy, having respect towards your elders, knowing your place within the pecking order and bumping up as you mature and then teaching those below you. Where were you deployed? We got called up to go to Haiti and we ended up staying in Haiti for four months. Because we went there, we lost our slot to Iraq, which we were supposed to take off in June of 2004, which is right when we got back from Haiti. So our sister unit took our space. They ended up pushing through Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah. And that was the biggest urban battle since Vietnam. 
there was a lot of casualties, a lot of deaths. A few of my buddies that I was in infantry training with died. And so part of me is just like, okay, that was God's way of like keeping me out of harm's way to a certain degree. But then I have great amounts of guilt because that should have been my unit. Like we should have gone through that battle. We ended up replacing them in uh, January of 2005. We worked the the first Iraq elections, which was historical moment, which is something that we in our country take for granted, like time and time again. And then we came back after seven months, did another workup, and then we went to Ramadi for another seven. And that's when kind of shit hit the fan. Our unit during that deployment took 18 kills in action. We had well over 100 uh, that were wounded. And that was just our our unit. And that's where you were injured? Yeah. We had taken a substantial amount of indirect fire. So mortar rounds, which are essentially just a massive projectile that gets dropped in a tube, goes up into the air, comes back down, goes boom. And we had to run through a building and then through this massive open area that had absolutely no cover. There were rockets that started falling I hit a rock. I didn't see it. My ankle gave out, popped. I dropped. Um, oh. My buddies had to drag me the rest of the way. Towards the end of August, we had woken up and went and smoked cigarettes and and brushed my teeth and came back and was sitting on my bed. Uh, the first round went off on the roof. I kind of looked down at my watch and jokingly said, oh, they're running late tonight. The mortar round went off right outside our window. Oh. And I took secondary fragmentation right next to my carotid artery and uh, it lodged itself in my jaw and I got thrown to the side and concussed very, very badly. The next day, our truck got hit by an IED and I, you know, had my second blast injury within 14 hours. That's it. That was that was that last deployment. So what was it like after that? When you returned home, What is it like to transition into civilian life with a traumatic brain injury and PTSD and all of the things that come with that? The transition was was incredibly difficult. Going from this extreme environment where you have to worry about getting shot or getting hit with an RPG every second of every day, it's very difficult, you know? And you're expected to be civil when you return. And the thing is, is like you have so much adrenaline running through your body that the only thing that can really compare is substance and driving way, way too fast, trying to get that same thrill, like extreme behavior in a way. Too many pull the trigger, they drown in the bottle when they return home because they don't have a really good network in place to help them transition. And I think that's one of the military's biggest failures is not helping guys and gals who are getting ready to get out of service or getting ready to return home um, transition in an appropriate manner. My buddy mentioned at a, a gathering one time, he was like, dudes can get out of military service and go hang out in their basement, stay on social media, interact with all their boys, and never have to reintegrate back into society. And hmm. that is a huge issue. The civilian world really doesn't know how to embrace and support these guys and gals who are struggling with just being a part of society or being in their own skin for that matter. I remember the only time I met my uncle 
uh, my uncle Tauber, uh, who was in World War II, one of the things that he said that has stuck with me was that he went to war. He was there for seven years. When he returned home, nothing had changed. And I didn't understand what he meant for the longest time until it hit me. It was like, oh, well, he was a farm boy. He had a farm to come back to. He had a purpose when he mm. returned home. You followed in your uncle's footsteps to your own purpose. But how did you end up on a farm in Vermont? Right after we got back, one of my buddies, he had grown up in the Shenandoah Mountains. And he kind of <laughs> got me back into the outdoors a little bit. Uh, we went kayaking a bunch on the New River, which is a saltwater river in uh, North Carolina. I had just these really incredible experiences there. And I had this other buddy from Pennsylvania, and we used to go out and just look for shark's teeth. And it, it was one of those things where I think at first I was like, I don't want to look for shark's teeth. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the more we went out there together and just like looked at the beach and looked at the waves and looked at shark's teeth and found coral and bones and all these really, really cool things. I got into it. I really got into it. And I'd come home with cargo pockets filled with shells and teeth and I'd put them on. But I think that's honestly what got me into seeing the natural world from this different lens and reminded me of what was the most important thing from when I was a child, which was being outside. And I think that that's kind of what inspired this transition uh, into agriculture. In 2009, I had met my now wife and uh, things moved very quickly. And I just had this feeling like, like we were going we to be hanging out for a lot, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> we kept our first garden and I had no experience touching the soil, preparing the soil, planting seeds or anything up until that point. I went to the garden and I took my shoes off. And I put my feet in the soil and just something clicked and it made sense. And come to find out in healthy soil, there's a bacteria that when it's absorbed through your pores, triggers a release of serotonin. And so I was building this really wonderful kind of connection with this natural resource that's all around us that we also take for granted. We've been here in our sixth season now have planted a substantial number of trees and built soil, have animals, and really the, the bread and butter for us is the education. So teaching people how to, how to view the landscape from the ecological lens to understand that everything we do or don't do has a repercussion, which it is for better or worse. And so we really tried to hone in on what it is our future looks like. And that essentially became like becoming a community farm. And so our lower area is now Wild Roost Community Farm. And we're going to be growing seeds for the Nohegan Band of the Kusik Abnaki Nation and giving the food back to the indigenous peoples of this land. And so this goes back to, to like what my uncle Talbert had told me when he got back. He's just, you know, the war was a small glimpse of his life, but it didn't define who he was. What defined who he was was his ability to steward the land. And that's something I think about regularly. And so I feel like I am carrying on my legacy now in, in a really healthy way. I'm wondering, in growing Wild Roots Farm, what surprised you? Were there any major fails or moments where you did not get what you were expecting? 
chickens, I love them, but they are the biggest pains in the asses because <laughs> I get super protective of the garden beds and chickens, they just, they don't care. And if you're doing this right, there's going to be an abundance of food that they want to eat. <laughs> so in one way, they're kind of validating everything that I've researched and implemented over the years by jumping over the fencing just to get at the the soil. <laughs> but there's nothing you can really do about that except for have a couple extra pots of stew. <laughs> right. It's a delicate balance. <laughs> it is. but that, and, and I say that uh, jokingly, but kind of seriousness as well. There's a big, 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 big difference from the meat that's bought in stores that is consumed at a larger scale versus what we are growing and raising and processing on site here. Our mm -hmm. animals, when we get them here, they are incredibly loved by my kids, by any of the students that come here. They get rotated on the new grass and, and in the woods on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, to go through all of that, it's a heartwarming and humbling experience. Everything about raising animals I love. Some people could say, well, how can you kill something you love? But the reality is, it's like we each have a purpose. They are brought into this space with the intention of turning the soil and increasing biodiversity and biological activity and increasing the organic matter, which helps with water holding capacity. They offer companionship. They offer all these things. And then they get to feed dozens of families. That whole process is honored entirely. Hmm. You come alive when you talk about farming. This all goes back to the bacteria in the soil and just that, that trigger releases serotonin. The animals are getting all giddy and our goat <laughs> kids are jumping around and playing more so. And um, it just renews this, this sense of joy in my life. And I think without having the environment that we live in and in the surrounding areas, my life would be much different. I know that not all veterans who get out of the service have an acre of land to work and to kind of decompress. A lot of times they're going back to, you know, unfortunate circumstances. Most of us are dads now, which is really cool. And we're all doing what we can to make it work and are mostly successful. Because the reality is like over the last 13 years, I have worried about these guys in and out, you know, wondering who is no longer here because they kill themselves. And it's mm -hmm. difficult at times, you know, because the reality is, is, you know, I did go to war and I do have post-traumatic stress and I did have blast injuries and I have watched my friends kind of fade. Um, and that's, that's difficult to hear. And that brings up a lot. And we've lost a couple guys. One of them was my best friend. Mm -hmm. And so I have to look at these moments and acknowledge, be like, okay, I know I've been really close to that way too many times. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to mm -hmm. be a statistic. I want to be here for my kids. I want to be here for my boys for that. If they have to call me at two o'clock in the morning and saying, dude, I need to talk, I could be there to talk to them so that way they don't pull the trigger. These are the things that are so common for the veteran community. It's not just, you know, coming home from war and being all proud and patriotic and thank you for your service. It's like these dudes and these gals that, that serve, there's so much more that comes with it that people can never understand. 
And so I just I just hope that we can kind of keep moving forward and, and be supportive of each other, regardless as to what our life experience is or what our beliefs are or what side of the aisle we sit on, because none of that shit really matters. At the end of the day, we're all human beings and we need to treat each other as such. What advice would you give to civilians to support veterans coming home? There's certainly a stigma around veterans that they're off the rocker and we're no different than anyone else. We want to be a part of society as much as anyone else does. I think the biggest thing is just like knowing how to be tactful and encouraging forward motion, but also letting the vet be a vet. We all have certain types of trauma. We all have life experiences that have changed us for better or worse. And it's knowing how to move through those Mm -hmm. moments that help us become better human beings. And so for a civilian who, who really wants to support the veteran community, sometimes all you have to do is just listen. Uh, mm. Don't talk. Don't offer your advice. Uh, just, just hear what that individual has to say. That's so helpful. Thank you. I would love to know if you've invited any of your friends that you served with or any veterans to the farm. Yes. That's the foundation of a lot of the work that we've done is working with the veteran community. And I absolutely love it because there is a humor among veterans that some people can look at and say, you guys are batshit crazy. (laughs) But to (laughs) us, it's so normal. And it's like a breath of fresh air when you're around other dudes or, or gals. I'm in contact with a bunch of my buddies regularly and not, not dudes that I served with, but other veteran farmers around the country. And we're always sharing ideas and just checking in on each other and like planning things the best that we can right now. Um, Some of the guys that I've gotten in touch with that I did serve with, we are planning an event up here and I'm going to raise the finest pig for us to eat. Um, (laughs) And that's that. And I'm really looking forward to that because I miss these guys. I want them to just come and not worry about family, not worry about war and just kind of decompress, you know, share tears and share laughter and and all these things that I think are really important for humanity in general, not just the veteran community. Let's talk about that community. What does the veteran community bring to farming that's special? I think that there is a discipline that carries over from military service into the civilian sector. A lot of vets that get out, they struggle with finding their purpose and knowing how to continue to to serve and protect whatever form that may take. And so with farming, it is mission-oriented. It's a renewed sense of purpose, and it's not life-taking, it's life-giving. And it's absolutely incredible to, to watch that transition, that transformation take place in an instant when they touch the soil for the first time. Prime example, we just got seven new piglets that we're raising for families that we'll be processing in the fall. And one of my buddies was coming over to help with the house. Uh, he was actually in Ramadi at the same time I was. And then we had another buddy who is a total techie guy and works for a company that, that manufactures ballistic eyewear. And, and they're both really, really awesome family dads, but then we had to, we had to move the piglets. <laughs> a couple of my animal husbandry books, they talk about like moving small pigs and the best way to do that. And it's just like, well, put them in a trash can because you can contain them and then bring them out. So we had an empty grain bin. And so we were dropping piglets in it one at a time and then carrying them over <laughs> about uh, 200 feet to the new paddock. And so the last pig put up the biggest fight 
I finally get its back leg and then Brennan comes over and he gets its front leg and then the pig kind of lunges. And then, so I'm in the mud and in the poop and then he's like standing over me and I'm holding this pig. And then we have to like work around each other. And then we finally <laughs> get it in the barrel and the three of us are holding the lid as his pig is jumping up and down, pushing the lid off. And we're all just kind of like shaking our heads like, holy crap, that was some crazy shit that just happened with piglets. We were able to stand there with each other and just like embrace this moment. And it's just like the pigs and us, we all took this big sigh and they come up and they're nudging us with their snouts. And it was just a really cool moment. And you see what that does for, for someone who doesn't raise their own animals or their food. It's, it's really neat. It's really neat. Mm. I'm going to ask you one last question. I ask everyone on the show, what is giving you reason to hope? There's times when I kind of talk to my kids, hoping that they listen <laughs> about, about food and about understanding how blessed we are to have a meal before us, how we have the luxury of electricity and running water. And that's not the case for a lot of countries and for families. And so what gives me hope is when they bust out these like <laughs> moments of wisdom. <laughs> and I have these moments where my kids and other kids, they are so compassionate towards one another. Amazing. Thank you to John Turner for getting your hands in the dirt, boots on the ground, and sharing your story with us. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted by me, Kate Tucker. This episode was produced by Rachel Swaby and edited by Elise Hugh. Our sound engineer is Mark Bush. Big thanks to Connor Gaughan, our publisher and fearless leader at Consensus Digital Media. Hope is My Middle Name is more than a podcast. It's a community. We want to know what's giving you reasons to hope today. You can message me on Instagram at Kate Tucker Music and post your stories with the hashtag reasons to hope. You can find Hope is My Middle Name on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We're a brand new show, so we'd love to know what you think. Subscribe, rate, and review Hope is My Middle Name on Apple Podcasts. Hope is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. We'll see you next time.